Have you uh, heard of the child returning from Sunday school where the Ten Commandments were being taught that Sunday? Had they been the topic, he came home and he asked his dad, he said, Daddy, what does it mean when it says, Thou shalt not commit agriculture? There was hardly a beat between the question and the father's reply. He said, Son, that just means you're not supposed to plow another man's field. You'll see the relevance of that in just a moment. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members and your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the second illustration that uh, Jesus has brought to his listeners, second illustration of what it might mean to live honestly before God's law. Living honestly before God's law is important because Jesus had said, except your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisee and of the scribe, you shall not enter enter into the kingdom of heaven. So it's important that we be honest and not duplicitous, that we not be divided in our thinking, becoming hypocritical, but being honest with ourselves. And sincerity is an important piece. He's talked about murder and anger being underneath of murder. Now he's going to be speaking about adultery and lust being underneath of adultery, both heart issues. He's also in this text going to connect not just two commandments of the ten, he's going to also bring in the last commandment about coveting and desiring that which is not rightfully yours. And Jesus is wanting us to live without pretense, to have no deceit in our hearts, and so sincerity by itself, I think it's important for us to note that sincerity by itself is not an evidence of correctness per se. You know, you may take poison thinking that it will save your life. And you can be sincere about that, and yet the poison itself will destroy you from the inside out. I remember It's a Wonderful Life. And you might remember the story in this little snippet in which George Bailey knows that old man Gower has put the wrong medication in those pills and he's got to deliver poison to a client and he's torn up inside. He, he sincerely knows that it's poison in those pills and old man Gower is under the influence here and he's kind of grieving and so he, he, he starts to beat his ears and yell at him and he's sincerely thinking that it's 
not poison in those pills. And sincerity about truth, though, matters. Sincerity is important, but it has to be, the object has to be rooted in truth. And for us as Christians, it's not just about being sincere, it's being sincere about the truth. We have to be sincere about God's Word. And if we have an honest heart, then we're going to put our faith and trust in what God tells us is true. And we're going to believe what He says about our own souls and our own sexuality that He has created us with. We'll be honest about it. And it would be to our advantage to be honest, because Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribe and the Pharisee, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so, we ought not to discount the threatening that you see in God's law regarding truth. We not lower the demand of the law. We ought to be honest about it. And so, I'm going to build out this big idea here this morning that a sincere faith in God is honest about one's soul and their sexuality. I think my job here is not really to explain the disastrousness, per se, of failing to keep His commandment. But yet, I think we need to be honest about how we were made, the dangers that come upon us if we don't be faithful to God's law, but we also need to be honest about the hope that we have in the cross of Jesus Christ. He does redeem, He does restore, and He does bring people to a place of finding true happiness. Now, the bare bones of the commandment we're going to look at in verse, seven, verse 27. We're going to add tissue to it a little bit later, but we're going to think about just the bare bones of what it says in verse 27. We see these words. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, Jews were, some, were very familiar with the seventh commandment. They, they understood that ultra, adultery involved a married man or woman having sexual relationship with someone other than his spouse or her spouse. That's the definition that was understood, that was accepted. Now, it's important to note the word choice that Jesus uses, and he's quoting the commandment. It's important because in the same context, Jesus uses a different word to describe a situation where divorce might be permitted. In verse 32, notice that it says, For I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. The word sexual immorality is a very general word. It's a general word for fornication, of which also includes adultery. Now, I hope you can see this little circles on the wall here. Fornication is a word that encompasses a lot of different kinds of sins, a lot of different kinds of sexual sins, including bestiality, prostitution, homosexuality, incest, um, pornography, and adultery itself. These all fall within the framework of the word fornication. It's remarkable 
how broad the word is used. And I'm going to develop that in a moment, but I needed you to see that there's a difference between general sexual sins and specifically adultery in verse, uh, verse 27. It's important to note, God cares very much about how we respond to his law. He cares very much about the person and the souls of ourselves. It's remarkable that in both of these commandments, Jesus addresses first murder, and then, he attack, and then he addresses adultery. Both of these are the building blocks of human society. I mean, think about this for just a moment. Think about what God says when he creates the first man and first woman. In Genesis 1, 27, I'm going to blend to do together chapter 2, verse 24, so you can see it. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. They shall become one flesh. You see, murder destroys one male or female representation of God's image. And adultery destroys the binary unity intended in marriage. Adultery is very destructive to the souls that become united and become one flesh. It's a stroke against the very image of God that's supposed to be reflected in the male and female unity before the world. Have you ever witnessed the effects of a stroke upon a person? It's pretty terrifying, actually. Particularly a very difficult stroke. A person who looks very uniform, very united, half of their body becomes dysfunctional. It becomes almost crippled and they can't... Their face droops. They become paralyzed on half of their body. The trauma on the nervous system creates an irreparable damage at times to people who have undergone a stroke. And I use this as an illustration because when adultery is perpetrated, the shock to the other binary partner can be so emotionally devastating they never recover for it, from it, just like a stroke victim. God has designed us to flourish in a binary unity of man and wife. And when that affects a person, it can really damage the souls of the other. God cares deeply about his creation, and he wants it to flourish. And these two building blocks of humanity were in the beginning. And Jesus is drawing these out so that we can visualize the seriousness of standing before God's holy law. But then he also brings together, remarkably, a third commandment, which is the tenth commandment, that thou shalt not covet, and to desire another person's spouse is coveting and Lust develops within the soul. 
And so what Jesus is doing in the next few verses, verse 28 to 32, he's, he's adding flesh and tissue to the bare bones of that first that commandment that he addressed about committing adultery. Verse 28, Jesus replies, But I say unto you, that everyone who looks at a woman and lusts with, excuse me, looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, anger and lust run along the same lines. They're both heart issues, yes. But they're also designed to exert power over another person. Anger seeks to destroy someone. Lust seeks to use someone. And God is deeply concerned about using the powers that he has given to us to serve other people and not to just serve ourselves. This is what Jesus said that later on in the book of Matthew, that upon the two commands to love God and love one's neighbor hangs all the law. God has designed us and, our, and has designed our moral systems to not be self-introspective, but to be others-focused and to be serving one another. So Jesus is putting on the flesh and bones here of the need to take responsibility of the souls of others. You know, they seem to be kind of opposite, but really looking with lustful intent here means to use another person, to look upon them, to kind of like use them as kindling, to to, to burn up the passions that you have internally. Now, to look at an attractive person is normal because within creation, we, there are all kinds of beauty around us. Just, there's just no, it's, it's an important, you know, beautiful people glorify God in the same sense that all of God's creation glorifies God. And God looks upon all of his creation and declares it to be good. But the important fact that we have to keep in mind is that Jesus wants us then to serve others. And the important point here that we need to see that Jesus says, looking itself is not the issue, it's looking with lustful intent. That is the issue that creates lust within the heart and you're committing, you're intending to commit a crime that God doesn't want you to commit. Now, in these verses, and I'm going to kind of slow, I'm, I'm going to speed up just a little bit here. But I want us to see that what Jesus is trying to get us to do is to be honest, first of all, about our humanity. Verse 28, excuse me, verse 28, he's, he's communicating this tendency within ourselves. And Jesus is actually dealing here with the male desire and to deal with a potential problem for men. Some cultures have instituted head coverings and try to prevent men from leering and looking and being tempted and keep women's beauty in line. But Jesus says, this is, this is actually, that's not the approach that's most, I mean, that's, that's, it's important to be modest, but Jesus here is not dealing with that. He's dealing here with the importance of a recognition of the human heart and the challenge of dealing with it at the root. The problem is not so much sexuality or beauty in nature, 
The problem is dis- disordered heart. And we've got to be honest about the power of sin, the power of the human imagination. We need wisdom, and we need to be honest about our humanity. Uh, We tend to think that no culture has ever had to live or deal with the things that we deal with. The human heart has always devised ways in which to, to encourage lustful thoughts. It doesn't matter if the technology is old or new. Archaeology has unearthed all kinds of immodest artwork. Archaeology has revealed that ancient cultures created things to encourage lustful and immoral thoughts. As I was preparing for this message, I I came across a pastor's admonition in the 3rd and 4th century. He, He was warning their congregations about going to the theater. Tertullian, in 200 A.D., wrote a short piece for Christians called On Going to the Shows. He, in that little pamphlet, he talked about going to the amphitheater and to the temples where there were reenactments of immorality and going to the circus itself because there was public spectacles designed to inflame the public lust. This is 200 A.D. Sounds like it could have been written today. John Christosom once preached these words, From whence are they, tell me, that plot against our marriages? Is it not from the theater? Whence they that dig through into bedchambers? Is it not from the stage? So that the subverter of all things is he that goes to the theater? It is he that brings it in a grievous tyranny. And he's saying, you can go and participate in these shows, but know that you may be bringing something inside you back into your own home that may destroy your home. Now, if you listen to these, you might think, boy, these guys are like Puritan prudes. No, they're wise. They're ancient fathers of the church trying to encourage a people to be holy in an unholy world. And so it's important for us to be honest and not be naive to the reality of our human flesh and not allow ourselves to be unduly uh, tempted. And we ought to control our hearts and submit our hearts to the law of God and honestly confess our, our need. Christians need to be honest about their humanity. Sexuality was created good. And yes, we are human. That has, we've fallen into sin. And so we pervert that which is good. And it's so important that we be honest that we need a Savior. We need a Savior. The Beatitudes beautifully express to us this need for a Savior. Blessed is the poor in spirit. They know that they they don't have righteousness within themselves to withstand even the temptations of the world. They're honest about that, and they live with that honesty, and they confess their need for righteousness. They hunger and they thirst after righteousness. And so a sincere faith is honest about one's soul and sexuality. They're honest about their own humanity. A second point I believe that Jesus is trying to encourage honesty in is that is about our own immortality. 
excuse me, immortality. Verse 29 through 30. I'll just read these verses again. See if you notice any repetitions. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your own members than that your whole body go into hell. What do you think Jesus wants us to do? It's okay, you can laugh. The repetition here is like a loudspeaker. It's like a siren going off. Jesus wants us to take our humanity seriously in light of eternity. It's not a joke. This is not all there is to our human existence. There is immortality. There is a life that continues beyond the present. What happens to us when we die? I know that we are so inundated with scientism that suggests that a strictly material world ceases to exist. You know, many people believe that matter is simply, and what we see of personality and memory is simply a, like a projection of the material. So, like a projector, or like one of these screen projectors, when, the, when it stops working, the light goes off, and it stops. Many people have a worldview that when our light stops, we cease to exist. But that can't be. Nothing has been designed, no, no one designs things to have, you know, when you think about God and how he designs this world, he designed it to glorify and enjoy him. He designed it with a purpose. You know, we make a clock, for example, with the purpose of telling time. We didn't just make a clock just to have a clock, right? God didn't just make people so there would be people. He made them with a purpose. We have a clock, and we use it to tell time, and, and when it stops telling time, we might change a battery because we want it to keep doing that which we created it to do. And this is how it is with God. We should not expect anything less. God created people for a purpose. He made us so that He might have a relationship with us. Why shouldn't we be created with purpose? God has more regard for man than any other part of his creation. We are the top of the food chain. We're the people that he has created to manage all of the world that we see. That means he has put a high degree of value upon us. He's not just going to discard us when he's done. You know, we have all kinds of governments in our world in which we reward and we punish sin, don't we? Even family government itself, parents over children. It stands to reason that if God is like a universal father over all, that he then has a system of rewards and punishments. He has created us with a purpose, and we can fall in with his purposes, we can rebel against his purposes, but he's not going to stand idly, he's going to do something with us. The old catechism, the old Westminster Catechism said this, how were our first parents made? 
God made the body of Adam out of the ground and formed Eve from the body of Adam. What did God give Adam and Eve besides bodies? God gave Adam and Eve souls, get this, that could never die. This is what generations of Americans knew up until probably the 1970s and took for granted. In the last 50 to 60 years, people have shifted their worldview and have said, no, God gave to Adam and Eve a soul that would die. <laughs> That's what they would say. No, we have a soul that will go on. And it will go on in one of two states. It will either be in response to God's gracious gift of eternal life, or it will be in rejection of it in eternity of hell, or we will have an eternity of happiness. And in verse 29 and 30, Jesus says that hell is the place where God vindicates his moral law. Jesus said it would be better to, in this lifetime to poke your eye out. Avoid the sanctions of violation of God's moral law. Do it. Cut your hand off. You're going to a place that may be infinitely worse if you don't take seriously God's moral law. Just like gravity, things that drop have to find fulfillment. God's moral law has to find rebalance and fulfillment, punishment and payment. And Jesus is honest here. He's not covering anything up. He's, he's transparent to the nth degree. He says, look, there is a place that's called hell, and you should do whatever you can to avoid going there. You should fall upon me for mercy. He's honest about the immortality of our soul. But doesn't God forgive the adulterer and adulteress? Yes, he does. He does. And he does so at great cost because he took on himself the punishment that we deserve. Therein is the gospel hope. So yes, God has put all of these laws that need satisfaction but he has also made provision to take that satisfaction upon himself so that he can then forgive sinners who cannot satisfy for themselves God's demands and his law. But you have to realize the cost of his forgiveness, the horrors of hellfire were experienced by Jesus Christ himself. He had the burning anguish of God's anger placed upon him on the cross. And if you can visualize that and be grateful for that, God imparts to you forgiveness. He gives to you the assurance that you won't have to go into a place like Jesus experienced. I think it's worth remembering that David recognized the blessing to the one who counts God's righteousness apart from their own works. We opened our service with it in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. David, who had committed adultery and murder and broke the Tenth Commandment, he recognized that he was not able on his own to satisfy God's demands. He needed forgiveness. He needed grace. And so he found blessing and relief 
he wrote these words, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. He was flourishing, he was able to flourish inside because he was honest with himself. He had a sincerity of faith in God who could provide the righteousness he couldn't produce on his own. Wouldn't you like to know the joy and freedom of soul that would allow you to enter into the kingdom of heaven? You can, but you've got to be honest about where you stand before God's law. You've got to be honest and look at the cross and not reject it, but believe it and take it for your own. David recognized this. He turned to God to atone for his sin. David brought a lamb. We don't bring a lamb. The lamb has already been brought for us. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And a sincere faith in God is honest about one's soul, sexuality, honest about immortality. And then lastly, God requires us to be honest about marriage itself. Verse 31 and 32. Verse 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Some people take this as perhaps the third illustration, and in some ways it is a third illustration of what it means to live honestly before the law. I take this as a couplet connected to this discussion on lust purposely. I do this because, first, there is a shortened introduction in verse 31. He doesn't say what he has said previously. You have heard that it was said. He just said it was also said. And I believe that this is intended to let you know that he's, he's not moving on to a full new topic. He's kind of talking about this together here because it makes sense in his mind to couple these things together. And then when he shifts gears in verse 33, he, he then says the full statement again in verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old. And he uses the word again to kind of say, hey, I'm still within this pattern. And it's important for us to see this, this connection. And it argues that we should interpret these two verses considering what Jesus has already said about lust. Honesty of heart and not mere legality is the point. We need to keep that in mind as we look at these two verses. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, and he quotes Deuteronomy 24. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And the reason that Jesus quotes this is because there was a debate in his day, a debate as to how to interpret what Moses had said in Deuteronomy 24. And there was a group called the School of Hillel and Shammai, two separate schools of thinking on how to interpret what Moses said. The Hillel group said, that a Jewish man could ask for a no-fault divorce, that a, a, a wife could burn his toast, and, and that would displease him, and, and that would be an, a thing that could 
allow him to have a divorce. The other school was more conservative. It was called the School of Shammai. And uh, these are not their actual pictures, by the way. This is not their actual pictures. But the conservative school limited, limited divorce to the grounds of immorality. And Jesus quotes, and it appears to me that in this case, he's letting them know that he sides with the conservative school of thought. And Jesus, in this context, is telling them that you need to have an honesty that legal divorce of an unfaithful spouse is a recognition of fact. There needs to be an honesty that a divorce has already occurred in the case of sexual immorality. Now, not a legal divorce, but there's a brokenness, a divorce that is occurring there is like a, they're becoming a stroke victim. The other person is being hurt and damaged. And the unchaste spouse simply does not live as a true marriage partner any longer. And he's saying that a divorce has really already happened, just like a person who has committed adultery in their heart. It's like it's already happening. You're already offending. And so I believe you need to understand that as Jesus is communicating here, that he's saying that divorce itself can occur because of lust. If a man or woman is guilty of adultery in their heart through lust, then they're also guilty of marriage covenant violation. Lust does not just affect one person in a marriage. It's a violation of the conjugal rights of the other. And it destroys that unity that was established at the very beginning. I'm just going to remind us of those verses in Genesis chapter 1. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And what was his purpose? That they should become one flesh. See, God sees, he cares about the whole person. And to enter into the kingdom of heaven requires a greater righteousness. And without honesty, without appeal to heaven for mercy, we're not going to enter into the kingdom of God. If visual or actual adultery has occurred, is divorce required? No. That's not what Jesus is saying. When infidelity occurs, if the guilty party is humbled and reformed, the innocent party should try to forgive them. Matthew 5, 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Yet if there is a persistent pattern of immorality, he or she is not to be enabler of a bad behavior. It is good to attempt reconciliation and live peaceably with all men. But there are times when even that is not possible and boundaries need to be established. Now, I know that in a space of 35 minutes, I can't explain everything that could be said about this topic. But what I'm trying to communicate is the context about being 
honest about our hearts. If we are not honest about violating covenant or violating the commandments, we should not think that we will enter into the, hev- to the kingdom of God. Jesus said, take your soul and your sexuality seriously. Seriously. So seriously that you will take decisive action to cut off your hand, pluck your eye out. It's that serious. Now, the whole sermon is not completed. He also encourages true piety of faith and sincerity and looking to him. You go through the whole book of Matthew and you come towards the end and you realize that there is a cross and there is forgiveness at the cross. There is the ability for restoration on the other side of the cross. And so we have to not only be honest about the demands of the law, but we also need to be honest about the mercy that is provided through the law. And we ought to look at the cross and recognize that there is mercy not just for others, but also for me. If there is mercy for me, there is also mercy for others. And we need to keep that square between our eyes and not deviate from the left hand or to the right. We serve a holy God who satisfied perfect justice that we will never be able to pay. And he is a merciful high priest. And he calls upon us as covenant violators, as as commandment violators, to humble ourselves, and he will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot possibly live pure, but we can only live in the hope that we know that we have forgiveness through his son.